Thank you, music folks, for leading us in a great time of musical worship. Now we're getting into God's Word this morning. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of Mark that we've called uh, Servant and Savior. And today we are in the middle of chapter 8 in Mark. We're at the pretty much the center point of Mark's Gospel. And so we're going to talk about how everything leading up to this point uh, was for one purpose, and now everything happening from this point forward is for uh, kind of a new purpose or a different purpose. Uh, uh, and so we'll be talking about that in the message today. Today we're calling the message, Seeing is Believing. Seeing is Believing. And you know, it's amazing the places where people think that they see Jesus. So I, I found some of these pictures on the internet of Jesus sightings. Here, let's look at that first one. <laughs> So there's Jesus on a banana peel, and there's Jesus on a water stain by a bathtub in a rental property. Uh, there's Jesus in the, in, in the frying pan, uh, maybe on the stove a bit too long. And there's Jesus on the bottom of an iron, and here's my favorite one, Jesus on a grilled cheese sandwich. Now that one, of course, is, is fake, but the other ones were real, right? All right. You know, it's, uh, it's silly sometimes where people see Jesus when he isn't there. But it's tragic not to see Jesus when he is right before our eyes because Jesus must be seen to be believed. Seeing is believing. And so as we work through our, our text today, I hope that you will see what I mean, all right? Mark wrote his gospel so that the people could see Jesus for who he is. The very first verse of Mark, Mark 1.1 says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark tells the story of Jesus as sort of an action adventure. There's not a lot of talk. There's short, punchy parables and lots of action in the Gospel of Mark. We see grace as it penetrates the limbs of a paralyzed man who walks home. We see Jesus disperse a whole legion of demons uh, who had taken up residence in a tortured man. We see Jesus wake a little girl from death as though she was simply taking a nap. We see him feed a crowd of thousands from one young boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish and leaving a multitude of many more leftovers than he started with. He walks on wind-whipped water before our eyes and he gives a deaf man hearing and speech. It's enough to make your head spin. Mark 7.37, which we looked at a few weeks ago, it said that people were overwhelmed with amazement he has done all things well, they said of Jesus. Now the problem with all those miracles, much like all the parables that Jesus told, was that despite what they saw, people didn't see the point. They saw the miracles, but they didn't see the point. And so as I mentioned, we arrive now at the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to consider, first of all this morning, blocked vision. Why is it that people don't see blocked vision? The problem of spiritual blindness. You might remember back in chapter 6 that Mark told the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 
uh, in chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8, kind of a repeat miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. And the stories are very similar, except for some very distinct details, but both are unique and astonishing miracles. The thing about the miracles, though, is it seems that they're hard to miss, right? They're eye-opening experiences. You see things that you've never seen before. And at least in Jesus' case, almost everyone knew that it was the power of God at work. Though a few said it was the work of Satan. This, like all other Jesus' miracles, was a display of compassion and power that anyone could see. And so you might remember that later when Jesus had the disciples alone, he, he threw them kind of for a loop when in effect he pointed back to those two miracles of the feeding of the two different crowds. And, and he said, why, why don't you get it? How can you be so blind? Do you not see? And the disciples kind of looked at each other as if they'd missed the punchline. They had no clue that there was anything to get. That's because there is always more to the stories of Jesus than meets the eye. There's always more. Jesus has more in store for us. The disciples saw Jesus' miracle, but it didn't occur to them that Jesus spoke in parables even when he was working the miracles. In fact, it didn't occur to anyone that Jesus' miracles carried a message that only a discerning eye would see. To many of the people, the miracles of Jesus simply meant that he was a God-sent miracle worker. And wasn't that cool? Many of the people were blind to the fact that Jesus' miracles were, excuse me, were divine announcements. They were powerful pictures that were built into the miracles. And it's easy It's an easy thing to miss, both for the people then and for us today, if we don't have a discerning eye. And the reason that we often don't see the meaning in Jesus' miracles is because we have blocked vision. We are spiritually blind at times. I remember when I was in the fourth grade, I learned for the first time about colorblindness. My desk was right next to a, a kid by the name of Wyatt, and Wyatt was colorblind. I was astonished that Wyatt couldn't see some of the colored numbers and letters that were up above the blackboard in the front of our classroom. And often I would say to him, uh, you know, these, these colors that were as plain as day to me, and I'd say, how can you not see that? I'd ask him oh, sometimes every day, can you see that? No, can't see that. Can you see that? No. What is going on, Wyatt? What is going on? I didn't understand colorblindness. Now, since then, I've learned that colorblindness is a genetic problem, isn't it? Something built into our bodies. It's genetic. But you know what? So is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness is in our DNA. People can see Jesus. They can look right at him, see what he said, hear what he's done, and yet see only a part of what is there. And that is the problem. It's not a problem of intelligence, but of blindness, blocked vision. Beware the blindness that keeps you from seeing Jesus. Last week in verses 11 through 21, we looked at two different kinds of blind people, if you will. And the first group were the Pharisees. Remember that said that the Pharisees came and they began to question Jesus, to test him. 
They asked him for a sign from heaven, and he sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given. Because he was the sign. Those Pharisees, they they posed as kind of self-appointed guardians of God's truth. That's who they saw themselves to be. And out of stubbornness and out of hard-heartedness, they refused to believe that Jesus was from God. Unless God himself spoke from heaven, a thundering announcement out of the clear blue sky maybe, or maybe a a beam of light focused on Jesus with a, a myriad of angels singing. Is that what they wanted? But you know what? That wouldn't have helped. That wouldn't have helped because, first of all, Jesus wasn't going to give them that kind of sign because even if he did, they would have found some other reason not to believe because they were blind. That kind of skepticism that masquerades as tough-minded is really hard-heartedness. So Jesus points to his disciples And he wants them to understand that that kind of hard-hearted blindness, remember he said it was kind of like yeast, practically invisible, but it changes what it touches. Yeast puffs the bread up when it ferments. And Jesus said unbelief is like that. Unbelief quietly works its way into our hearts and minds, tainting how we think about Jesus, how we see him. That's why we need to beware of people around us that don't believe, that are hard-hearted because it can have an impact on us. As Jesus' disciples today, we can no more avoid these intellectual and religious hypocrites now than they could back then. But we need to remember that they are dangerous people. These kinds of people are dangerous because they are wicked. It's It's not their minds that we have to fear or their skepticism, but their stubborn wills. For there is no way that they will ever surrender an inch to God no matter what sign he shows them. And that kind of proud hypocrisy can work its way into our lives if we're not careful. Jesus says, watch out, beware of the leaven." Blocked vision and spiritual blindness can spread and it can invade. And that brings us to our next point, clouded vision. Clouded vision, a wavering faith in Jesus. That's the second kind of blind people, if you will. And it's represented by the disciples themselves. They're blind like people who can't see the forest for the trees. They're blind like people who smile blankly because they don't realize the story that you told them has a point. Last week, I called them thick-headed. Remember in verse 17, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened too? They didn't understand that being low on bread wasn't their real problem. Jesus' heart was still sighing from the frustration of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, but the disciples were busy poking around in the glove box looking for something to eat. And more than that, they had just seen the miracle of the multiplied bread packed with meaning. And they had no clue, no clue that they were supposed to think about it, to interpret it. They had no clue that the bread of life was sitting right in their boat with them. They were blind because they didn't know how to look. Their vision was clouded. And sometimes our vision 
becomes clouded as well. Sometimes we can be thick-headed. So what can we do? Well, that brings us to our text today. In the middle of chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 22. And I want to invite you to read this passage with me on the screen. The words from verses 22 through 26. Let's read this together. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. You know, this is an odd miracle. Don't you think? Why in the world would Jesus need more than one action to heal this man? Do you think that he got distracted maybe mid-miracle and kind of lost his mojo and so had to redo it? Was this guy's blindness a, a really bad case that required two treatments? Maybe the man moved his head at the wrong time as the critical moment as Jesus was doing the miracle and some of the miracle power missed. No, what did we just learn? We learned that miracles have meanings. They have meanings. And in particular, they tell us more about Jesus than we realize. More than he is just a miracle worker. When Jesus asked the man after the first touch, do you see anything? I wonder if the disciples thought, wait a minute. He just asked us almost the same exact question in the boat. Do you have eyes but fail to see? We've got more in common with this guy than we thought. I wonder if they thought any of that. Probably not. With Jesus, seeing is believing. This is the center of the whole book. Jesus is leaving Galilee. He's leaving behind the enthusiastic, accepting crowds, and he is turning towards Judea and Jerusalem, where opposition will increase where skepticism will grow, and where he knows he will meet his death. He knows all of that. Everything in the Gospel of Mark has led up to this, and everything else starts from this moment, and all of it is centered on a statement that we're going to look at in just a moment. It is the middle point of the story of Mark. Almost no one who has seen and heard Jesus up to this point thought that he was just Jesus of Nazareth. He was clearly more. Apparently a lot of people thought he was some great godly man. Some thought that he was some guy of the past that had come back to life. But in a land where presumably everyone was waiting for the Messiah... That wasn't who people thought Jesus was. Even those that were closest to him and loved him the most missed it. They all had clouded vision. Their spiritual eyesight was obscured. And do you know what it was obscured by? Their own ideas. Their own preconceptions. Their own personal desires. And so they were clouded from fully seeing 
who Jesus was. And so once again, Jesus separates from the crowds and he focuses on his disciples, those 12 hand-picked men, for another teachable moment. And it's an effort to prepare the disciples for better vision. So let's look at the next section of the text in Mark 8, verses 27 through 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, suddenly, Peter, good old Peter, Peter gets it all of a sudden. It's kind of a blurted out miracle. Peter sees clearly, you are the Christ. Did you catch that in verse 29? Who do you say that I am, Jesus asked. And Peter answers, you are the Christ, the Messiah. He says it clearly. He gets it. In Matthew's more detailed account of this, of this story, Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, that's Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And so it is a miracle revealed to Peter in that moment. He is the Messiah. Now, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark says this too, but it's in a different way. And I think his different way is by telling that story of the blind man that we just looked at. Despite all of his teachings and miracles, despite all of the evidence right before our eyes, no one, no one will ever fully see Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, unless Jesus heals our blindness. Unless God the Father reveals what we can't see for ourselves. You see, God is in the business of doing miracles all the time. And the greatest miracle of all is for us to come to a full understanding of who Jesus is. There is no greater miracle. The problem is not a lack of evidence. It's simply our thick-headedness, our clouded vision that only God can touch and cure. And so that brings us to the culmination of this text as we encounter third, clear vision. Clear vision, seeing Jesus for who he is. At the heart of the Christian faith is this confession that Peter verbalizes. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. God anointed him as king and priest over God's people. And all who come to God must come through Jesus the Messiah. There is no other way. So it seems, it seems that the disciples' blindness has been healed with this great realization. You are the Christ. But this confession, as central as it is, as thoroughly true as it is, it's still linked back to that blind man's statement. Remember what the blind man said after the first touch? I see people but they look like trees walking around. The man was seeing, but with clouded vision. 
It's better than blindness, no doubt about that, but it's not exactly healed, is it? And it was the same with Peter and his friends. Let's look at the next few verses in verses 31 through 33. And Jesus, after Peter makes that magnificent statement, you are the Christ, it says Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, to see Jesus clearly, for who he truly is means that we must see his suffering, his rejection, his death, and his resurrection all as a part at the heart of God's plan for salvation of lost sinners. To fully see and understand these truths, though, can be hard sometimes. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote about it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, or we could maybe paraphrase that, to those whose eyes Jesus has healed, we both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So do you see how, how Jesus says to Peter, out of my sight, Satan, get behind me, Satan. Wow, one moment Peter finally sees and the very next moment he's in league with the prince of darkness. What in the world happened? You know, nothing is more at the heart of Satan's work in this world than blinding people to the absolute necessity of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection to accomplish the will of God. As far as Satan is concerned, go ahead, call yourself a Christian. Go ahead, say that you believe Jesus is the Christ. Great, just, just leave the cross and the resurrection and the hardship that Jesus had to endure. You just leave all that behind. Leave that out of it and Satan will be all good. That's great. You see what, what Jesus was saying to Peter here? Jesus diagnosed Peter's blindness. What did he say? You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That is spiritual blindness. Peter, like most people, didn't want too much from Jesus. He wanted too little. You see, people want a Jesus will be sure that they never have to endure hard times or disappointments. Wouldn't that be great if we just knew that? That there'd never be a hard time or a disappointment. People want a Jesus who fixes things. Jesus who fixes their tickets or keeps their taxes low. Wouldn't that just be great? Thanks, Jesus. They want a Jesus who answers all their prayers and does all the miracle work that they desire. 
In essence, they want a vending machine, Jesus. Put in my request, out pops what I want, and I'm off on my own way. That's the Jesus that so many people want. But we are still blind if we don't see that all is lost if we gain the whole world but lose our soul. It was to save the lost souls. That was the purpose for Jesus coming and suffering and dying and rising again. That is the core of the gospel message. It is at the center of the gospel of Mark. There is no more important truth for us to rest in than who Jesus is, what he did. And what he did has an outcome for our eternal destiny. I read a story recently about a man by the name of Arthur Kaplan. Mr. Kaplan was a Jew, and he was a school teacher in Brooklyn. He grew up attending Hebrew school and experiencing Jewish life and culture in New York City. But Arthur also loved singing. And one day he saw a flyer advertising a community choir that was seeking new participants. Well, Arthur decided to attend the first, his first gathering with the choir, and after attending, he decided to join that community choir. And it wasn't but a few weeks later that the choir director announced that the choir would soon begin preparation for the holiday season, and the director had chosen for the choir to perform Handel's Messiah. And so that is how Arthur, a born and bred Jew from Brooklyn, came to sing, for unto us a child is born. And he came to sing, Behold, the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. He sang, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he sang, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And somehow, through all those rehearsals, and all those performances, in Arthur's singing of all of that truth, somehow Jesus touched his eyes. Not once, but twice. And he saw clearly. And one evening, following a choir performance, Arthur Kaplan met with another Christian from the choir. And he confessed Jesus as his crucified and risen Messiah, and he was born again. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And so how about you? Are you seeing clearly? Have your spiritual eyes been touched two times so that you are motivated to move beyond the easy believism of cultural Christianity to real True, saving faith. Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Does that knowledge motivate you to radically change your life, your lifestyle, your goals, your daily activities? You see, that's what the gospel does for us. If Jesus is truly our Messiah, our Savior, our Redeemer, we cannot keep that truth to ourselves. We are called, we are directed, 
we are commanded to share that truth with others. And so this morning, I want to leave you with a very practical challenge. And the challenge is this. Seek to have one gospel conversation every day. You see, when we rehearse the gospel daily, by speaking it, by living it, by doing it, we'll also want to share it with others. And so I want you this week to seek to have a gospel conversation every day. Make it a point to pray that God would give you an opportunity to share Christ every day in some small way. And today we're just going to provide a real practical tool for you to do just that. On your way out today, out in the lobby are a number of tables. They're covered with bags filled with sacks or sacks filled with uh, apples. Freshly picked apples, generously provided from the orchards of Gordon and Esther Locke. And in each sack of apples, there's a simple gospel presentation, one of these little pink uh, gospel presentations. There's also a little card with some information about Garden Way Church. And I want to challenge you to take a bag or two of those apples with you. Take them to a friend, to a co-worker, to a neighbor. Give them a gift. Tell them it's from your church. And look for an opportunity to share a bit of the gospel with your friends and neighbors. This last Tuesday night, a group of us met here. We went around door to door to some of the neighbors around the church building here. We knocked on the doors and we offered apples. Some people said, no thank you. Some people didn't answer the door. But a few people were very gracious, very thankful to receive that gift. They thanked us. They thanked us for the work of the church here in this community. You could have an opportunity to do that with somebody that you know. So I encourage you to take a sack or two and pray and then share. By the way, I want to say something about those apples. Those are holy apples. Did you know that? The word holy means set apart for a purpose. So as you take those apples, don't take them home and eat them. All right? <laughs> They're not for you. They are set apart for a purpose for you to have a spiritual conversation with somebody that you know. If we truly see Jesus clearly, we can't help but to point others to him. Let's make that our prayer this week. Will you pray with me? Father God, bless us this week as we seek to proclaim the truth of Jesus in many different ways, in many different scenarios, with many different people. Lord, we pray that you will give us clear eyes. Lord, that you will give us bold hearts to speak truth in loving ways to people that we know. Lord, we pray that you would bless our words, that you would bless the path ahead of us. And Father, we pray that we might be obedient to your command to share the good news of Jesus everywhere we go. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing the final song in just a moment, but before we do that, I want to take just a moment to uh, make a couple of quick family announcements. One has to do with the memorial service for our dear brother, Norman Fox. I want you to know if you haven't heard yet that uh, the memorial service will be November 6th 
here at the Gardenway building at 11 a.m. And you are certainly invited to come and to uh, share in that celebration of life. And then the second thing I want to let you know about is there's a group of men here in our church that are meeting every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Uh, for coffee and fellowship at the River Road Sherry's Restaurant. And they'd like to invite other men to join with them. So, uh, men, you're invited to be a part of that. Thursday mornings, 10 a.m., Sherry's on River Road. Let's stand together as we continue with our worship time. Go ahead, Dennis. That's at uh, Gateway. Oh, Gateway. The Gateway Sherry's. Good thing. Thank you, Dennis. Let's stand together as we close with this gospel song. Yeah, we started with this song. We didn't sing the last verse that is really our, our hope because of our Savior, our Messiah, the Christ Jesus. Jesus. 